0: We're all already using drugs in our sexuality, highly informing them. We're just doing it really badly. Everybody and their mother is on some version of an SSRI. Right, the, the antidepressants like Prozac, those completely crush libido. Alcohol, which is the overwhelming highest correlated substance related to sexuality, sexual violence, state rapes, all those things, is terrible for sexuality. It's a dehydrating, numbing instrument. And then the final is hormonal birth control for women. Those are three things that we just take for granted, and they're all palming our sexuality and responses.
1: Hi, I'm Mission Lakiani founder of Mind Valley, the School for Human Transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley Podcast where we be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. My guest today is Jamie Wheel. If you haven't heard of Jamie, he is one of by far the most popular guests I have on this podcast. Jamie's new book is called Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a world that's lost its mind. I've started reading the book and this book absolutely hooks you. This is this is one of those books that you read because it's so darn entertaining. Very often personal growth books are educational, yes, but this book is so absolutely entertaining and it has you thinking about fascinating ideas long after you put it down. Now, I love having Jamie On the podcast, because what he discusses shifts our way of thinking in remarkable ways. I'm going to give you an an example in a moment. But first, for those of you who just tuned in, we're talking about the book, Recapture the Rapture. You can read about it on recapturetherapture.com. And while the book covers many topics, our focus today is going to be on sex, not God, not death, on sex. We're going to be talking about a specific chapter of the book that I think is going to really hook you. It is chapter eight and nine which is all about sex. Subtitle of the book is Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. And what I want you to know is that we're not just talking about sex, we're really talking about sex that is so rapturous that you literally die and connect with God. Jamie's going to go deeper into that. So once again, the website is Recapture the Rapture. If you're listening to this while you're on your computer, you might want to open up that website so you can bookmark uh, that book and add it to your Amazon card. Now, let's do a quick intro on Jamie before I tell you why I love learning from this man. So Jamie, in addition to being the author of Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a World That's Lost His Mind, is the global best-selling author of one of my favorite books of all time, Stealing Fire. How Silicon Valley, Navy SEALs, and Maverick scientists are revolutionizing the way we live and work. That book, *Stealing Fire*, influenced me so much. We launched an A Fest on that topic. We had everyone from Stephen Kotler, the co-author of the book, to Wim Hof speaking in Jamaica on the power of altered states. Altered states became a topic of massive fascination for me. And it was partially sparked by this book, Stealing Fire, which came out a couple of years ago. Jamie is also an expert in peak performance and leadership, specializing in neuroanthropology, the intersection of culture, biology, and psychology. His most recent book, Recapture the Rapture, focuses on the broader social problems of healing, believing, and belonging. So I'm really excited to have Jamie Wheel on the podcast today. Jamie. Welcome back to Mind Valley. Oh, great to be here, Vision. So, um, you know, I was telling the audience why I loved having you on because you your work has influenced Mind Valley in major ways. You know, the last time you came on the podcast, Jamie, do you remember what you spoke about? No. What did we talk about? What you spoke about is it's fascinating. It is one of the most magnificent podcast interviews I did, but you spoke about religion 2.0. You spoke mm. about how, as a world is moving away from religion, we create religious experiences through. Events that bring people together, events like Burning Man. And then you gave a formula, which was really powerful. I know because I took it down and I passed it to my team. And you gave a five step formula to plug into events. So the events create the most euphoric religious experience. Now, you said a couple of things in that formula that were fascinating. One was so, so some, some are obvious music, obviously, music matters, right? Music, dancing. You, mes- you mentioned sexual tension. Like there needs to be a sexual dance at these, these events. And the third thing you mentioned was really interesting, breath work. Now, I would have thought one would say, well, bring in meditation. But no, you specifically said breath work. And so here's what happened. It took me several years, but I decided to incorporate breath work into my events after listening to you. Now, mm-hmm. I couldn't do it immediately because the pandemic hit, but oh, just, okay. we, we brought back A-Fest after a three-year hiatus. And I got a uh, Niraj Naik of Soma Breathwork to do a breathwork session at the event. Now the results came in two days ago, and that breathwork session, which you sparked me to do, was the highest rated session of the entire event. So you would get on. So I wanted to just express my appreciation for your ideas that have actually infused itself into Mind Valley and helped us in some way construct our event experiences.
0: Ah, fantastic. Well, let me, let, me, let me give you another one that I really care about because my sense is, is that in the instructional design, like what we're talking about is how do you create culture, even if it's a momentary one, like for an event or a conference. And the other thing is is how deep down into shadow do you go? Right. So breathwork is neurophysiological state shift. Like that helps everybody get into the present moment and it may even give them access to some non-ordinary information and inspiration. Fantastic. But the other piece, which, mo- which many event designers are gun shy about, because they don't want to get into the scary stuff, but without a doubt, the highest highs are fueled by a skillful descent into the lowest lows. So whatever you do in order to name the darkness, in order to explore shadow, that is actually your rocket fuel for
1: your ascent into the celestial realms of Communitas. Love that. I love that. Um, Your your model of events, the five-step model, I'm going to add what you just said to that. Reflect on it, when it comes to our next event, which is Valley University. That's happening in July in Tallinn. We're expecting 1,000 people to move here for three weeks.
0: Oh, fantastic.
1: And uh, so anyway, Jamie, thank you, because like I said, your ideas have been mind-blowing. Now let's talk about the topic for today. Um, the, one of the key ideas, one of the most fascinating aspects of Recapture the Rapture is part two of the book. I mean, the book is fascinating overall, but I love part two, which is called The Alchemist's Cookbook. And you talk about respiration, embodiment, music, sacraments, and then sex part one and sex part two. Now, we we don't have time to cover the entire book. So I, I asked Jamie to dive into one chapter so that there's extreme value in this podcast. And today we're going to be talking about sex. Jamie, would you like to begin?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, and the reason there's part one and part two, like all the other, all the other sections just get a chapter each, but sexuality is so fraught and so problematic and so loaded in our lived experience. It really took two chapters to kind of snip all the wires to the bomb. Right. And, and part of that bomb, part of what gives it its charge and destructiveness is just to realize three things. Thing one is evolution is utterly amoral. All evolution cares about. Is propagating the most robust gene pool possible. That leads to war and rape and conquest, that leads to infidelities, that leads to jealousies, that leads to all of the human condition, from the Greeks and Helen of Troy, you know, to Shakespeare, to Brangelina, to you know, anything else we see. Like all of our heartache and heartbreak is just a mismatch between our values as people what we care about, who we care about, why we care, and evolution's relentless grinder of just saying, of just slamming people together to mix genes and create new hominids. So first realizing that, just realizing that so much of our grief and suffering in the world is derived from we are at odds with evolution's overriding impulse to procreate. The next is, is that humans are utterly exceptional in our sexuality. And we can't tell because we're sort of, you know, the old saying of, you know, you can't read the label from inside the jar, right? We're inside the jar of human sexuality. So we just assume it's completely normal in the animal kingdom, but it's not. And Jared Diamond, who most folks will know, he was the Pulitzer Prize winning anthropologist who wrote Guns, Jones and Steel and lots of other things. Yeah. He also wrote another very interesting book called Why Is Sex Fun? And in it, he makes this really convincing case that, in fact, out of, you know, 4,000 animal species in the animal kingdom, we are the only ones with delayed ovulation, copulation outside of estrus or in heat animals. And like permanent female breasts and hips, which are, you know, impedances to running and hunting and fleeing and all those kind of things, but we have them. Um, extended male penis size, which against all other primates is asymmetrically outsized. And the the anthropological assumption is this is actually female mate selection. So, And and even female orgasm, like these are very, very rare, highly unusual. And the very fact that we have recurring elective recreational sex is a total anomaly in the animal kingdom. Like lions mate 36 times in 24 hours, the males have bobs on the end of their penises that, that, that in, induce right, gestation and also scrape out competing sperm, right? Ducks practically drown each other. It, it's violent and brief, right? And, and it, so animals are consumed by sexuality once in a blue moon and then utterly forget it. You know, Terence McKenna, the psychedelic philosopher, famously advanced with his brother Dennis, um, the idea of the stoned ape theory. Of human consciousness that I that our sort of hunter gatherer grandpa and grandma stumbled across some magic mushrooms on cow pies, ate them, and that that is what brought us to higher consciousness, right? And it you know and it he they launched that back in the '90s. It kind of got dismissed. It's been getting dug back up and dusted off lately with kind of the psychedelic renaissance. But I think you can make an even more convincing case that it's the horn day. It's literally our sexuality that has created the prolonged states of neurochemical brain change. It actually advanced and accelerated our development. Because again, Jared Diamond says, he's like, we think of tools and we think of fire and we think of language as like the big things that we did to go from hairy apes to us. And the reality is he's like, our sexuality has to be considered the fourth leg of that stool. So, so step one is evolution is amoral, right? We shouldn't take it personally. We should understand that we are being danced on the strings of an indifferent set of evolutionary impulses. Humans are exceptional. We are absolutely the outliers in the entire animal kingdom. And if we recognize those two things, we can hotwire evolution for our own accelerated
1: healing, inspiration, and connection, a.k.a. sexual fitness. So what exactly is sexual fitness? And you also used the word sexual yoga earlier. Yeah, I mean, I would just sort of say
0: sexual fitness would be the level-up category, the kind of generic descriptor and that is basically just saying for most most of us and i don't want to speak specifically for anybody but i would say in general we view sexuality as either an exclamation point on the end of a really good day right or as a bargaining chip to bestow or withhold you know in, in order to get other things attention clean dishes mode lawn whatever you know a nice dinner whatever it would be right so we use it as a as a, as a social relational bargaining chip or we use it as a celebratory recreational bonus. And those are both totally fine. Um, but it is just to say that, wow, <clears throat> if I waited to floss my teeth, right? Until my teeth were shiny bright. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to give them an extra thing. If I waited to go to the gym for the one day that I feel on top of the world, right? We wouldn't floss our teeth very often and we'd be, we'd be terribly out of shape, right? Instead, we commit to those things, not because of their, their specific in the moment ROI, right return, right? We commit to them because we believe that over time, the aggregate benefit is, is an important good part of health and balance and vitality. So the same with sexual fitness. We Almost none of us have just that practice where we sort of bow onto the mat, where we use that, that circuitry in our system, which by the way, the, the only reason that sexuality looms so strongly is like evolution laid all that cable. It laid our entire ecstatic Nervous system circuitry based on the sexual impulse to procreate, because if we didn't do it, we cease to be here, right? And there's there was no instruction manual for hundreds of thousands of years, and for all animals too, right? There's no instruction manual. So Mother Nature threw the kitchen sink at incenting us to do these things. As a result, all other pleasurable cir- uh, circumstances and triggers all use that same tra- those same train tracks. So sexual fitness, just by circulating, intensifying, and discharging. Our sexual arousal system creates huge amounts of health, vitality, trauma relief, and connection. And when you think you go back to the evolution as amoral and life's a bitch, and then we die, and we tend to hurt the ones we love the most, you know, and, and like trying to raise families is really hard. You just think of like how how much of a burden just life is, just doing the life thing, and you're like, oh wow, you've got some magic bits. You know, women's, a woman's clitoris, for instance, has 8,000 nerve endings. It's the highest concentration of neurons anywhere in the human body. And it's less than 20 years that we've even had a functioning anatomical model of that organ. You're like, oh my God, we don't even know
1: anything about ourselves. I, I and, just do a talk by this by Amy Killen. It's been 17 years since we have, only 17 years since we've heard, we've had an, an anatomically correct model of uh, the clitoris.
0: Yeah. And meanwhile, we've got like space telescopes you know, like seeking the big bang. And you're like, holy smokes, I think we're a little upside down here. But you're like, okay, look, if we told a story about two little animals who can wander through the woods, right? And if if they figure it out together, they have two magic bits. And if they put their magic bits together, right, they can create starlight. They can create neck snapping, white light, bliss, belonging, connection, and meaning. You're like, who are those two little creatures? I want to get to know them. And that's us. And so the notion of sexual fitness is just basically to say, you know, just the concept of what would it be like if we committed to dedicated, regular, daily through weekly, through monthly sexual practice, not as an exclamation point on the end of a good day and not withheld or dispensed as a bargaining chip, but simply for the overall accrued benefits. And what, and what does our life look like and feel like
1: when we do do that? Oh, that's, that's amazing. So, before I get to that study, I uh, just want to reflect on something I heard recently. We had Marissa up here, the Mind Valley hypnotherapist, speaking at AFEST. And she did a, a very, very interesting session where she hypnotized the audience to get better orgasms. But what was fascinating is I was talking to the audience, and many people found just from this hypnosis, orgasms being 50 to 80% better mind blowing orgasms. We had one couple who came to her and thanked her saying that they had never experienced an orgasm together. They still loved each other as a couple, but the woman had never experienced an orgasm with her husband. And finally it happened after this hypnosis. Point being, Marissa said, we have to take away the stigma against sex. But this leads to a question, Jamie, why is there so much stigma around sex? Why is there so much guilt, stigma, even not just sex with a partner, but on masturbation as well? And how do we, what do we do about this? Well, I mean, gosh, that's, that's an infinite question
0: we could spend days on, but my sense was, and the reason, you know, kind of what I, the first chapter I talk about, like chapter one on sexuality is just trying to, trying to deconstruct all that, just trying to put it in like anthropological context. And so rather than, cause I mean, look, I wasn't, I, I have no interest in being a Neo Tantra teacher my partner and I don't have any interest in sort of like putting ourselves up on a, on a pedestal and selling workshops. We came to this reluctantly, right? It was like, oh gosh, like the bottom line is if you're a sincere student of biohacking and human optimization you end up in one of two places if you if you don't flinch in your research you end up with sexy biohacking or nerdy kink you just do it's 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 the way the human system works if you don't shy away from it right and so when you realize that it's it's that it's not um that we should steer clear of these things because they're so loaded and so volatile right we should actually take that as a signal like where there's smoke there's fire. Why are these things so loaded and volatile? It is precisely because they are so potent. So every society, every tribal culture, all the way to, you know, quote unquote, civilized cultures has had to tightly regulate sexuality in their their social system or nothing else gets done, right? You just end up with a bunch of fornicating bonobos. So take, for instance, right, the sort of the, the 19th century Mormon, right? They had rigorous prescriptions on all things ecstatic right? They weren't even allowed to drink coffee and tea. They weren't allowed to do tobacco. Although funnily enough, there's a plant in the, the deserts of Utah called Mormon tea. And, and they used to break off the branches and chew them. And they're, they're filled with ephedra. So it's basically the same raw ingredient as methamphetamine. So the Mormons were like, no coffee and no tobacco, but you can chew, you can chew meth and, and, and you'll feel great. But they also had very strong sexual prescriptions because they were irrigating an entire desert. Their giant earthwork projects required everybody on point and focused and not literally dicking around. So, so when you think about it that way, you realize that everything from whose offspring is whose, you know, to what are we, are we paying attention to any kind of tribal coherence and organization at work, or are we off chasing boyfriends and girlfriends? Sexuality is so powerful, that evolutionary drive again, that any organizing system. Of of humans had to put a lock on it, had to control that; otherwise, nothing else would really get done. And I think that's arguably the root dynamic, of which taboos, of which shame, of which repression, of which
1: all the other things get built on top of. Well, I I think another thing that happened was the fall of the Roman Empire. I'm reading a book right now called *The Shortest History of Europe* by John Hurst. Right before the fifth century, when the Roman Empire fell, the Greeks celebrated sex. Uh, the Romans celebrated sex. I mean, you've 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 seen um, this very often in uh, in documentaries or TV shows about ancient Roman times. You've heard about Roman orgies and, and Greek orgies and things like that. Um, sex was celebrated, uh, both straight sex and gay sex. But Emperor Constantine needed a way to uh, to unify the empire around a set of common Christian values. And what John Hurst explains is that. Western society, which eventually uh, gave birth to America and and, and all other Western societies, had a very interesting relation to the nude body before and after the advent of Christianity. So there's naked and then there's nude, right? So nude during Greek and Roman times was celebrated. That's why if you look at the Venus Mm -hmm. de Milo, she's nude. You look at David. um, David was a a Renaissance um, representation of Greek sculpture, nude. But in between, during the Middle Ages... We went from nude to naked, and naked became a sin. If you look at medieval drawings of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve are hiding their nakedness before God. The human body became something to be ashamed of. Shame became a way to collect alms for the church. And so that could be another reason why we in the Western world have this weird delusion towards sex. I mean, I'm, I'm of Indian origin. If you go to the jungles of India, you'll see these beautiful tantric temples with carvings of people in in acts of fornication. All of that was shut down by the Victorian British because they found it to offend their, their um, Christian sensibilities. So I think that could be another reason why we have this weird dogmatic idea that sex is bad, that sex is something you've got to take slow, that people who go around having lots of sex are called players of sluts. And I think it's something that's very bad for our health and
0: happiness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, it, again, all, all that smoke just signals how powerful a force it is. So the question is, is do we end up dancing on the strings of amoral evolution or social taboos and shame? Or can we untie those strings, right? And learn to dance for ourselves? And I think that's really fundamentally not just an empowering, pleasant, enjoyable project, right? But it's also potentially essential psychotechnology. For us to manage all the stresses and uncertainties of the world we're in, because the world needs us at our best right now, and many of us are feeling at our worst. We're coming out of a couple of years of lockdown and isolation. We're dealing with all the uncertainties that we see in our news feeds, right? All all the projections and reports of the coming decades, like we can't go into the feudal position Mm -hmm. and we can't collapse into reactive anger, rage and fear, which is, you know, obviously a lot of what happens on Twitter and everywhere else. Right. So we so we need to get back to the better angels of our nature. And one of the most simple, powerful ways is by harnessing our actual bodies and brains
1: to heal our hearts and minds. What would you advise for people in terms of what they should look into or experiment? You have two chapters in the book and you talk about solo practice, partner practice, couple practice. But then I notice you 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 get you you talk about the scientific studies that you did, but you sh- you shy away a little bit from from telling us what you would recommend. So I'm just curious, while we're being open here, what would you recommend people explore?
0: Yeah. Well, and, and also just for anybody that knows, like the book is deliberately built as an Easter egg hunt. And those two chapters describe the sexuality and make the case. So it all seems rational, reasonable with footnotes. Then the next chapter describes the study, but then really all the kind of the secret sources in the appendix, which is in the participants journal accounts. So they're the ones who kind of describe what they did and what they came up with. But I'll, I'll kind of give you, so we did, we, we took 10 couples over 12 weeks and they engaged in partner practice. So these were folks already in partnerships and we had them basically engage in a series of daily, weekly, and monthly practices. And then we had, we measured them and tracked them for how is this impacting trauma, both like historic, like lifelong big hits you've taken, but also day-to-day, like your resting heart rate variability and those kinds of things. What was your access to peak states? And that was everything from day-to-day flow, like just how in the zone, how in the moment am I, all the way up to like the Johns Hopkins mystical experience questionnaire, which they use for psychedelic studies. So how much absolute mystery and all was I experiencing? And then ultimately also closeness and connectedness. Like, do we like each other more? Do we feel more connected to each other? And across all six of those measurements, they were off the charts. They outperformed talk therapy and they even outperformed psychedelic therapy as well. So you're like, holy moly, right? You don't have to wait wow. six months to get into a study. You don't have to risk
1: something shady. You can do this together at home. Just, just going back on that, this practice outperforms psychedelic therapy yeah. Okay. And when you say this practice, I, mean, I have the book open in front of me so I, I, I can see it over here. There's the daily, twice weekly, once weekly, once monthly. Could you quickly tell us what you mean by this practice? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, back to the notion of sexual fitness,
0: right? That idea of first, first things first is making an ironclad commitment to engage in sexual practice with or without a partner, but let's just for the sake of this thing, say with a partner. Um, whether you like it or want to or not. Right. So that's 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 an overwhelming game-changing first commitment. In fact, there's a there's an Australian Tantra teacher that said it very <laughs> like very straightforwardly. He said, he said, until you would rather eat a shit sandwich than fuck your partner, you haven't even begun practicing tantra. So you're like, whoa, <laughs> okay, it's a hard litmus, but like that get that gets to the point which is, this is not the exclamation point on the end of a good day. This is something we commit to when we want to rip each other's heads off. This is something we commit to when we can't stand thought of each other. It's especially then that the practice has its power. So another an, another method I like to think of is just you know like martial arts. We bow onto the mat of our practice and we commit to that practice hell or high water. And we trust that the practice typically um, it, what it, I mean, basically what happens is you've got a laundry list of bitches and moans and complaints going in. And then on the other side, most of them have just filtered away. And then you, so you're, you're not about the dishes and you're not about dirty socks and you're not about grocery lists. You may still be about core issues in your life but there's a softness to it uh, that allows us to to rework some of those things and, and in talking with rick doblin who's the founder of maps the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies we were at a conference presenting together and he described that all of their mdma ptsd research what they've been doing with sufferers of war trauma domestic violence and those kind of things with the the compound mdma he said you know the closest analog we're finding in our research to that state that is healing so many people is high vasopressin, high oxytocin, high, high prolactin. And he said, the closest thing we've got is the post-orgasmic state. So you're like, oh my God, here's this schedule one compound, crazy hard to get legitimate access to, all sorts of people suffering while they wait. And how else might we get to that exalted state you know, known only to researchers as post-orgasmic? You're like, oh, well, there we go. So, so the practice that you're asking about, right, can simply start with a daily routine practice and it can, and it can be something as simple as, for starters, just rebalancing the scale between men and women, right? And, and while you could obviously argue for reciprocity, I'll just say, hey, for starters, just direct stimulation of a woman's clitoris for 15 minutes to 20 minutes without obligation or reciprocity. And while there have been several different iterations of that, some of them have been very problematic in their communities and their cultures and that kind of stuff. The simplest is to, is to do it actually, you know, back to the neurology of it you're like, oh, a woman's clitoris has 8,000 nerve endings. Um, And, you know, the head of a man's penis has 7,000. So obviously coitus is one way, but the next highest concentrations, right? And this is Wilder Penfield, one of the originators of of modern neuroscience. He actually drew a homunculus, like a version of a human that was sized for where all the nerve endings were. And he's got giant hands, big lips and mouth, right? The funny thing is he didn't have big junk, but he should have, right? But I think that was probably just a bridge too far. So you're like, oh well, if we flip each other over, right? So so basically, tongues to clitoris, tongue mouth and tongue, right, is naturally lubricated and highly sensitive. So the bottom line is 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 deliberate, practiced oral sex is the simplest way to describe
1: it. And, and I like what you said earlier, which I think is a really important point to bring back. You said it's like bowing at the karate mat, even if you just had a fight, even if you just frustrated with each other, go ahead and especially it's like super triple, especially. Uh, and in the study that you did. The couples have committed to this. Even if they were not having a good day with each other, the man was still going down on the woman and giving her oral sex. Yes, but pro tip for the guys, like none of your super
0: secret moves, no penetration. You're trying to go as slow as possible, as lightly as possible for the duration. And the woman isn't trying to get any place. And, and interestingly, that this came from uh, Dr. Nicole Prouse's work. She is a McKinsey Institute researcher who's done some of the most pioneering work on female sexuality. And she has been studying this exact process as basically woman's orgasm as prescription pharmaceutical for anxiety, for physical pain, for insomnia, for depression. And she's been studying this range because the bottom line is that neurochemical cascade, right? Is is dopamine, is endorphins, is anandamide, is all of the anti-anxiety, pro-euphoria, pro-equanimity sensations and feelings that we have access to. And okay. just the simplest knobs and levers, the lowest tech ones, can you use a esoteric compound? Yes, you can. Many of them are controlled and contested. Can you use a fancy fMRI machine? Yes, you can, but they cost a hundred million bucks. And if you don't have copays, it's
1: cash on the barrelhead. Can, can we do it in fancier, more complicated ways? Yeah. And I want to come to that later. But so, so you mentioned the daily, you men- mentioned the yeah. daily. Tell us about the twice weekly protocol. I have it in front of me in the book and I think this is fascinating. This is this is what kind of brings that
0: term, sexual yoga of becoming to life. Because basically think of anything good, loving, restorative that you can do, including just body work, including acro yoga where you're balancing or flying, including Thai massage, where you're actually like helping knead and open each other's joints. Right. Including breath work. Right. Including any of these breath work and both hyperventilatory breath work, but also breath holds. And you combine that with sexual practice and arousal, then you can get to really interesting states. And again, to, to go back to Nicole Prousey's work, she has been zeroing in on this very thing where she's like, actually, she was focusing on orgasm for a long time. And then she's actually, she's like, it's, what does she call it? The periorgasmic state. It's basically edging. It's It's the getting, ramping up to a level of arousal and then extending that time period. She's like, that is where the magic happens. So what you can do I mean, basically, it, you know, what we would advise on this, especially when you start thinking about music and substances and all the additional moving parts and pieces that you can bring to this, people are like, oh my gosh, that sounds utterly debauched. Like the only time I've even heard of people doing this is like Berlin clubs and Vegas bachelorette parties. Like what? I'm not that kind of a person. And you're like, you're absolutely right. Um, most of the people who have gone all in like kitchen sinking this stuff are usually like not governed. They're just straight up But but what we would encourage is, you know, be a purist six days a week, be a hedonist one day a week, like your sort of Sabbath practice with your partner, and then use what you choose to do is not just whatever right? it's You're using like a conformist point of view, like evidence and research.
1: So can I just read out a, a, um, a paragraph here from Recapture the Rapture? And again, it's recapturetherapture.com. Okay. So Jamie actually breaks down the study and he talks about the daily practice, the twice-weekly practice, the once-weekly practice, and the once-monthly practice. Now, obviously, I want you guys to check out Jamie's book, right? Um, th- that's important. We want to we wanna show some love to Jamie. So I'm not going to read out the entire twice-weekly practice. Get the book. It's on page, when I open it up on my iBooks, it's on page 337 in the appendix. But Jamie talks about something called the rule of nines, which is really a structured sequence of deep and shallow thrusting combined with breathwork and eye contact. Uh, Nine shallow thrusts followed by eight shallow thrusts, one deep thrust, Seven shallow thrusts, two deep thrusts. Six shallow thrusts, three deep thrusts until you get to nine deep thrusts and then return to the beginning with nine shallow thrusts. And then there's a couple of things you do after that. Which you will discover in the book. Yeah. And, the, and so that, that gets to the sexual yoga
0: stuff. You can literally just put your bodies, and you mentioned actually Hindu temples, right? right. If you think of any of those combinations, right, they are all they're, all, they're all, they all were carved on temples for a reason, and they all disclose different neurophysiological sensations and information. So you can really just be like, oh, we're going to play, just think of this like acro yoga or partner yoga. But it includes erotic intimacy, and as you do, that, and you can also include theragons, you can include percussive massage, you can include all sorts of things. And so, for instance, that rule of nines, which is you know borrowed from the Taoist tradition, is just a breath and timing and sequence protocol. And and the nice thing, some, somebody in the comments just mentioned, well, what about Kundalini? There's you know there's tantric traditions, there's all these things. Those are profound. Long-standing lineages. They have all sorts of wisdom accrued in them. We're not talking about it in that way. We're actually talking about it in exactly the reverse. So in most religious traditions, including esoteric sexual traditions, there's usually all sorts of mythology wrapped up in the technology. You'll read what you're, you know, someone give me the user manual, please. And it's like, you're praying to this God, you're invoking this energy, you're doing all of these things that for us in the Western world are really hard to validate or even sometimes decode. What we're saying with this, this sexual yoga becoming is the exact opposite. We're saying, here's protocol. Here's how it works and why it works in your body and brain. Go conduct the experiment. Then you will get your own data. You will be able to then come back and make sense of that. So there's no need for to call it funny names like Yonis and Lingams. There's no need for like play acting. There's no need for any of the cringy stuff, at least for some folks, right? That might be like, oh no, that's not me. would never do that. And it's just instead of very straightforward set of basic protocols, go do them, see what happens for you. If it's knock your socks off amazing, that's content. If it's a total whiff and nothing happened, that's content, right? And we can be cool. much more experimental and experiential
1: on this. So so what Jamie suggests is, is daily 15 minutes, twice weekly, a 60 minute session. That's where the rule of nine uh, technique comes in once weekly a two-hour session, and once monthly, a three to four-hour deeper dive with full exploration of all the above practices, plus, in Jamie's words, potential addition of more intensive visionary elements, extended breath work, prolonged sexual and sensory stimulation, longer-acting compounds, ideally timed to co- coincide with the week of ovulation for female partners so, yeah, so I, that would be
0: that would be your dirty weekend right yeah. <clears throat> there, there is, so so i mean guys if you don't know this right all women obviously do right there is there is that ovulation cycle there are there are basically fertile and fallow periods in a woman's 28 day cycle a guy who might have been rocking his lady's world 2 weeks earlier is suddenly coming up stake eyes 2 weeks later with all the steak moves and he doesn't even notice or know why But a woman does and obviously when she is at combinations of high progesterone and testosterone and estrogen in her ovulation that is a time of maximum fecundity and that's everything from lubrication to arousal to pain tolerance to all those things so If you're going to make the time for each other, make that the time. And then also you can rely, you know, sort of responsibly and cautiously, but intentionally, in include substances and skillful intoxication into your sexual practice. Now, all the caveats apply. There needs to be an impeccably safe container. There needs to be trust and integrity between the partners. There needs to be responsibility and minding, any addictive or compulsive behaviors. There needs to be all those things. But there is a recent book by a yale biologist and an oxford ethicist called love drugs and they make the case that it's like hey for starters anybody who recoils at that who's like oh who needs those extra sexuality should be enough or that's wrong or that's bad he's like look we're already their, their case was we're all already using drugs in our sexuality highly informing them we're just doing it really badly so Everybody and their mother is on some version of an SSRI, right? The, the antidepressants like Prozac, those completely crush libido. Alcohol, which is the overwhelming highest correlated substance related to sexuality, sexual violence, state rapes, all those things is terrible for sexuality. It's a dehydrating, numbing instrument, right? And then the final is hormonal birth control for women. And there's study after study that shows that women who are on hormonal birth control have lower set of sexual satisfaction, they're less orgasmic, and they typically are more prone to divorce. So you're like, those are three things that we just take for granted, and they're all harming our sexuality and responses. Versus what if we took, again, took responsibility and swapped those out and so simpler things, and this is obviously depending on people's preferences, where you live, what's available, what's legal, what's prescribable, all that kind
1: of stuff. Yeah, so'm I'm, so I'm curious. Um, I, I want to get I want to get to that topic. What substances would you recommend people experiment with? Uh, but, but before I, I do that, I just want to state to the audience what I find really fascinating about this conversation. You said this has been better than psychedelic therapy. And just to give you guys an example, a couple of months ago I had Bob Parsons. He's a, an American billionaire. He founded GoDaddy. And he was supposed to come on the podcast and talk about building GoDaddy.com into a billion-dollar company. Instead, he spoke about how he had just healed himself from 50 years of PTSD because his wife had read a book on plant medicine. And Mm -hmm. together with his wife, they went on a three-day journey together. The first day they did ayahuasca, the second day they did LSD, and the third day they did psilocybin. Mm -hmm. At the end of three days, he said 50 years of PTSD from serving in the Vietnam War and seeing his buddies blown up and killed disappeared. Mm -hmm. He said the way he ran his business, the way he, he ran his family, the way he lived life completely changed in three days. So this is why it fascinates me when you say that this sexual practice is even more effective than concepts like maps therapy uh, which mm-hmm. which for those of you who are unaware is a, is a form of of, of therapy um, which involves MDMA. Well, well let, let me MAPS. jump in there right because it, it's not a pissing contest right. right.
0: We we're, we're huge supporters of Rick and Maps and and everything that's happening there. And right I would I would submit that one of the key you know the other shoes to drop in the psychedelic renaissance Right And where the New York Times and and everybody and their mother is just constantly publishing all this new breakthrough news. It's happening at Johns Hopkins. It's happening at Imperial College with a buddy of ours, Robin carhart Harris, Matt Johnson, at Hopkins, all these fantastic researchers. The other shoe to drop is long term. What is the original breakthrough experience that people are getting interviewed on? Like, I'm healed. I was cured of PTSD in three sessions or one session, one weekend or whatever it might be versus where am I a week a, a week later, a year later, three years later. Because the irreducible truth of the human experience is it's hard. Change is slow and difficult. And what we actually need, like that's a macro practice, right? right? The once in a blue moon, maybe once in a lifetime or once a year or once a decade, blow out the pipes, epiphany experience. Mm-hmm. And by and large, people are fairly good at getting access to those. Right, everything from that book I wrote that you talked about, "Stealing Fire," Michael Pollan's "Change Your Mind," the psychedelic Renaissance. People can go and find those kinds of experiences if they're curious. Right, all the psychedelic retreats in Costa Rica and Mexico, wherever. Right, and we're getting pretty darn good at our micro practices, our dailies. Right, you know everything from Dave Asprey to what you guys do with Mind Valley to this abundance of information, Atomic Habits, how to fucking optimize your twenty-four hour period. Right, and we're getting pretty good at that too. You know, there's a surprising degree of sophistication in what people do. The giant gaping hole in our personal hygiene and growth technologies are the meso practices, the middle practices, not the blowout the pipes and not the everyday's. It's the in betweens. Because when when you don't have a meso practice, right, and you have a blowout the pipes epiphany, you generally are in this afterglow. You're like, I can do anything, and I'm completely healed. And then, like, life and the density and the contradictions start piling up again you start getting triggered, you start hating on the haters, you start withdrawing from that loving feeling, and you don't have anything to do but your push-ups and your daily meditations. And that's weak sauce to manage it. So what do you do? You start looking for the next massive blowout experience. Maybe I should go to Burning Man. I heard that's cool. Maybe I should do a Vipassana retreat. Maybe I should do some other giant atomic bomb. And it's the measure practices of which the sexual yoga of becoming is a, I think a very strong candidate, right? That's what keeps the flywheel moving. So if you think about like your big blowout experiences as this huge boost of energy, and it sends your flywheel spinning at a thousand miles an hour, which is probably too fast to do much with, right? It takes some while to slow it down and integrate and kind of like get back to -to day-to-day responsibilities and identities. But then most of us just let that Wheel just slow down to nothing again. And then we're like, oh, now I need another giant boost of voltage to get me up to speed. When in reality, you're like, that's risky, it's dangerous, it's costly, and it's precious. So how do we? I like to think of it like a potter, like you know, someone shaping clay pots, like they're kick wheels. You know, before they were electric, they were those big, heavy round stones, and they'd have to kick it to get it going. Right, but once it was going, they could just flick it with their foot, and they could shape clay, and that's us. So these meso practices allow us to keep momentum going, right? And they allow us to kind of keep. And now we're going to mix metaphors. We're going from a potter's wheel to us to a boiling pot, right? We allow. It lets us keep the crucible of our transformation on a simmer without boiling over and making a mess or getting so cold that all your pasta sticks together. This mesopractice would be the sexual uh, routine that you are suggesting. Absolutely. And, and of course, you know, and back to like anybody who's trying to live a householder's path, whether it's a couple right. and you both have complex jobs and
1: service in the world, whether it's parents yeah. and, and trying to raise a family, this shit's hard. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I know people. I know people, and I, and I don't advocate this at all. I know people who believe that they have to do an ayahuasca retreat every three months to get their shit together. I mean, I I, I do ayahuasca, but every five years. That's that's my my ratio. Um, yeah. And I and I think this idea of the meso practice to keep to keep it simmering is so important.
0: Yeah, and and, and the other interesting thing, right, is it, is if you combine, um, let, let like, let's take the, let's just even take your once a week to your once a month right. practices, right. If you combine those really intentionally, and you can you can literally go as far as, you know, you're sort of almost creating a practice container. So let's just say this is in your bedroom. A, sanctify your bedroom. There should be no screens in your bedroom. You should only sleep and fuck in your bedroom. There should be no mindlessness of any stripe. You know, set up something resembling a non-denominational to denominational altar, right, as you face the bed. And that can be populated. It shouldn't be like a hippie grab bag of like found objects and stones and twigs and moss and prayer wheels. And like, keep it elegant, you know, keep it aesthetically clean and resonant and have music and have candles and have some form of olfactory stimulation. I mean, incense isn't obvious, but it doesn't need to be that, but something that triggers smell and creates that space. And that's kind of like your dashboard or your flight console and then your bed. Almost becomes like your your magic flying carpet.
1: I I love that idea of turning the bedroom into a sacred temple. Absolutely, sleeping, sex, and meditation. I actually, I've actually had uh, Mind Valley Spiritual teachers help me optimize my bedroom. People like Marie Diamond. Next question, Jamie, because we we're, we're running out of time, and I just want to give out the the book URL again. It's Recapture the Rapture. That's the that's the the domain. Go check it out. There's a beautiful trailer introduction of the book. You can order it on Amazon, and then submit your receipt and get a toolkit, a really useful toolkit that you can use as a companion for the book. So there are tons of bonuses there. So yes, you can buy it on Amazon, but I want you to go to recapturetherapture.com so you get Jamie's bonuses. Jamie, one of our final questions is this. We're talking about psychedelics. We're talking about sex. What about the combination? Are there any sexual experiences involving psychedelics that you recommend? For example, I found incredible power uh, in sexual experiences combining sex with psilocybin. I was curious to hear your views. Yeah, well, this gets to the God sex death metric, right? So so very, very straightforwardly,
0: I mean, one of the things I was most kind of geeked and excited and grateful to, to come across and then get to write about was this notion of what is the, the neurophysiology of a death practice, right? Because you realize, and obviously all ecstatic experiences are some form of dying to ourselves, dying to our sense of identity, dying to our stories, know all the way to a near-death experience, literally cardiac flatline, right? So we know that across time and culture, almost all civilizations have had some version of a death practice, the Lucinian mysteries, Kali cults, whatever it would be. And they've been profound and central to how we do this human thing. It's where we go into the realms of the liminal. It's where we gather inspiration from the muses or the gods or ourselves, whatever it would be. And there's actually a very straightforward checklist. And it's basically increased dopamine, endorphin, anandamide, oxytocin. So however you get to do those things, it is um, create high vagal nerve tone. It is stimulate and optimize your endocannabinoid system, right? Of, of which marijuana happens to fit in, but this predates it by 500 million years. Right. And then put your brain waves into deep waking delta states. And delta states are very rare. This is you and I talked about this in Croatia a few years ago, right? Waking delta is very, very rare and absolutely game changing. Most people only experience it in deep and dreamless sleep. But there are compounds and practices that help get you there right? And it's literally, it's the lowest frequency of neuroelectric activity. It is is as close to brain dead as you can get. So uh, now we're back to death, rebirth, not just a metaphor, like an actual almost flatliner experience, but without the physical risk. And you can do that with oxygen, with carbon dioxide, with nitrous oxide, with oxytocin and ketamine nasal sprays and and even edible cannabinoids and even you know puffable or vapable ones. So you can create this kind of menu where if you actually stack those things together with edging, with extended orgasm, with focused breath work, with deep embodiment and movement and stimulation of all of these things, you can create a legit death rebirth psychosexual experience. And and that is game changingly inspiring profound healing bonding and you realize oh wow this is our tool potentially That's right it. to have the love to have the capacity to have the courage
1: to have the joy to keep on keeping on together i'm hearing among a mind valley community a lot of case studies of people who've experienced profound healings while experimenting with sex and these mind altering protocols yeah absolutely and you know would be remiss to say that this is a cake war or
0: right. that this isn't highly consequential terrain. Right. So for me, my background, you know, is, is in mountain guiding, surf rescue, wilderness medicine, those kinds of things. So like I kind of come from a space of how do you manage risks in right. terrain that can kill you and teach people and empower people to travel it well themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, right, this is NC17, fifth class rock climbing. It's right. not for kids and the falls can kill you, but right? If you go wandering up Mount Everest without an ice axe and crampons and, and a puffy jacket, you know, and you come unglued, it's your fault, right? On the other hand, if you apprentice to these kinds of experiences, and you learn from people, and you and you take on the safety and the protocols, then standing on top of that mountain at sunrise is one of the most profound experiences a human can have, right? And so, and again, this is, this is wisdom from my partner, um, even far more than from me, but like, especially for women although obviously this applies across genders a container of absolute trust is essential because the amount of vulnerability and the amount of openness and the amount of impressionability is off the charts in these spaces and and you can come unglued so the old esoteric caution was when dealing with these things the left hand pass make haste slowly right right and as Ed Visters, the the famous Everest mountaineer, said, he said, "Summiting is optional; getting home is
1: mandatory." Right, and it's super important to have a partner whom you absolutely trust, not someone you've you know you've 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 just recently met. Someone you absolutely trust, and the experiences can be godlike and profound. It seems that for so long we've been told that sex takes us away from God. What Jamie is advocating here, and what we capture the rapture positions is that sex is a pathway to experiencing God. And so let's end this podcast on that note. Jamie, some closing words? Well, I mean, I would just say that, right?
0: I mean, that the bigger point of the book is kind of, you know, what, where have we come from? And what's going on? And what do we do now, right? And the conclusion is really all about, hey, in the face of these the insurmountable odds, of our complex metacrisis that we're living through in this generation, right? How do we access our joy? How do we access our courage, right? And how do we, how do we reignite our capacity to play full out on behalf of everyone, everywhere? And this sexual fitness practice is just one small piece. It just starts with the dyad. It starts with the pair, which is what evolution made darn sure we did better than any other kind of socialization we could ever have. So let's figure it out at that level and then let your dyads, become dozens and let your dozens become dozens of dozens. And everybody in Silicon Valley talks about everything has to scale. Everything has to be world-changing all at once. It has to get to a billion or it's pointless. And this is just the exact opposite argument. We start in the here and now. We start with each other. We start in our homes. We start with our families. And if we have enough juice in our tank for myself, it spills into my relationship. If our relationship is thriving, it fuels our family. If our family is thriving, we can lead our community. We can lead the world. So this is the exact opposite of all the tech bro advocacies. And it's saying, let's start simple. Let's start here. Let's start with our bodies and our hearts and our minds. And then we have a shot at having the courage and the hope that we're going to need.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much, Jamie. And for those of you who enjoyed this conversation, dive into Jamie's book, Recapture the Rapture. The URL is recapturetherapture.com Go check it out. Go to that URL. You can buy it from Amazon, submit your receipt, and get a whole bunch of different guides and tools that are going to help you with the practices you will learn about in this book. This book is truly going to change your life. You heard me speak about how just my initial podcast interview with Jamie three and a half years ago changed the way I, I put on my events. Imagine what this book is going to do for you. Jamie, is one of the most respected minds in the field of personal growth and self discovery. So Jamie, thank you so much for being with us. It was a blast vision. And for those of you who enjoyed this podcast, I'll see you on the next Mind Valley podcast. Now, those of you who are interested in exploring sexuality further, just want to let you know that we just signed two incredible teachers on Mind Valley. Bibi Brjoska and she is teaching self pleasure primarily for women, but uh, as Jamie said, solo practices also are hugely beneficial, and this is what BB teaches. BB's new program called Waves of Pleasure will be released on Mind Valley around Q3 or Q4 this year. In addition, we recently finished filming with Dr. Amy Killen, who is one of the foremost uh doctors of sexuality in the world. Amy's program, The Science of Great Sex, will be released again on Mind Valley within the next four to five months. So if you're a Mind Valley member, there's a lot of great programs on elevating your sex life that are going to be coming to you. Thank you, and I'll see you on our next episode. I'm Vishen Lakhiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.